0: be an indication if you didn't know it before that Peachtree City is a place that no one is from. And so everyone leaves around the holidays, but it's all good because it's Christmas. Uh, nothing can bring me down this morning. I'm excited. I love Christmas music. I don't know about you guys. Uh, come often and early this December to join in with James and whoever is around him because it will be fantastic. If you haven't been around for a Christmas season with us before, uh, man, it's just such an enjoyable thing to to sing with a room full of people uh, based on the arrangements of some of the songs that we do. And it will be, as Jason said, culminated in our Christmas Eve service. And it will be just an explosion of Christmas music and other things. So um, this morning, as you heard this word even up to this point in the service a couple times now, this morning marks the beginning of the season of Advent, which might not mean a whole lot, Uh, To you, if you didn't grow up in the church or maybe uh, grew up in a not-so-liturgical church setting, since the fourth century, um, the church has celebrated the season of Advent. It's a celebration that starts the fourth Sunday before Christmas and ends upon the arrival of Christmas itself. And so this morning marks the beginning of Advent 2019. The, The word Advent, just in case you were curious, maybe wondering about this, comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so the season of Advent is simply meant to focus our attention on the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus into the world, the celebration of his first coming and the hopeful anticipation of his second coming. It's a reminder really that in the midst of all the distractions that Jesus is the savior of the world. Yes, there are presents to buy, Yes, there are dinner parties to host or attend. Yes, there's family to visit, movies to watch, playlists to listen to, recipes to be made, traditions to uphold, all of that stuff for sure, and by God's grace, a fresh awakening to the beauty and wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. My guess is that many in this room and many who couldn't be with us this morning are by and large incredibly familiar with the Christmas story shepherds keeping their, wa- their watch of their flock by night, the, the no vacancy signs that filled the city of Bethlehem, the, the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And yet, I would argue that, that there are aspects of the story that are hidden underneath the wrapping, hence the title of this sermon series, that, that show the, the beauty and the wonder uh, of the story for what it is in ways that, that maybe we've never considered. And so the big question for this series is this, could God really awaken our hearts one more time to the beauty and wonder of the story of Jesus coming into the world? For the next month or so, we're gonna, we're gonna unwrap the story of Christmas as we dive into some of the lesser known passages associated with the Christmas story with hopeful anticipation that God just might break in and break through, revealing to us the, the wonder of Christmas all over again. And so my prayer for us is may God shatter our complacency this Advent season. May God lead us to declare with the fullness of our hearts, glory to God in the highest. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter one. We'll be in the first 17 verses this morning of Matthew's gospel account. If you don't have a Bible, I think there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can use that Bible as we dive into the scriptures this morning. uh, You can have that Bible as an early Christmas gift if you don't own one or happen to have a translation that's maybe a little bit difficult to track with. What's the deal with the no splash zone, by the way? Like the Sermon on the Mount series is over. All the heavy lifting for 2019 is done. You can move closer, it'll be okay. Let me pray for us and we'll go ahead and we'll dive into the scriptures this morning. God, I pray that you would do what I just mentioned. I pray that you would shatter our complacency in these coming weeks leading up to Christmas Day. I pray that you would lead us to declare with the fullness of our hearts, glory to God in the highest, that that our hearts would leap for joy within us as we dive into um, some of the lesser known passages associated with this great story Of Christmas, I pray that you would awaken our hearts yet again to the beauty and wonder of the story of Jesus coming into the world. Would you do that? Holy Spirit, in doing so, would you show yourself mighty in power? We're desperate for you. Apart from your moving and working in our midst, this is a futile, hopeless endeavor. So we invite you to move. We invite you to move in power so that we might walk out of this place encouraged, comforted, awakened yet again to the wonder of Christmas. God, we invite you to do that in the name of Jesus, the one who came, the one we sing about, the one we give praise and honor to as we celebrate his coming into the world this time of year and all times of year, really. It's in his name we pray, amen. So let me just start with a question. If you were... If you were looking to have your heart awakened to the beauty and wonder of Christmas all over again, where where might you be inclined to focus your attention in the scriptures? How about a genealogy? How how about one of those so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so passages? That's exactly how we're gonna launch this series, in in one of those passages of scripture that that many of us might be tempted to skim over on our way to the good stuff. And, And my hope is that as we leave this place this morning, that, that we would walk away in agreement that, that these first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel account is the good stuff. Matthew's gospel account begins with these words, chapter 1, verse 1 it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As we Talked about in the Sermon on the Mount series, if you were around for that, we just wrapped it up. The Old Testament ends lacking resolution. Everything goes dark for about 400 years. There's no prophet that speaks on behalf of God. There's no scripture recorded for the better part of four centuries. And the the next record that we have in terms of scripture is the story of Jesus coming into the world. A story that that Matthew intends to show is a continuation of the story of the Old Testament. And so Matthew begins with a genealogy, showing us that that Jesus is from the messianic line of King David, and that he's also a son of Abraham who will bring God's blessing to the nations. Right, Right off the bat, Matthew's out to make clear that this is not some fable. This is a true story rooted in human history with real names and real places. If the story of Christmas was a fable, then our ultimate aim would be to figure out the moral of the story, the lesson learned that we might implement in our lives to make them better, which would really make Christmas ultimately about what you and I do or don't do. The God of the Bible, nothing more than some divine elf on the shelf. Matthew declares something vastly different. So that I would say this, there's a difference between the moral of the story and the heralding of the historic. There's a difference between looking for a moral and looking for a hero. The the world says that there are naughty and nice people and God loves the nice people, so be a nice person and God will love you. Be a naughty person and God will give you something far worse than a bag of coal. The gospel says that there are no naughty and nice people. There are naughty people and Jesus who came to save naughty people like you and me. So that the, God, the Christmas story is the heralding of something true, something that happened outside of us to bring about our rescue from Satan, sin and death, amen? It's got all the classic ingredients of a compelling fairy tale, a king and a kingdom, a fire-breathing dragon, a damsel in distress, a dragon-slaying rescuer. And yet, as we see in this morning's passage, it's a true story. Matthew goes to great lengths to to declare this to us from the very beginning of his gospel account so that the genealogy is not the boring part of the Christmas story. It's not to be glanced over and moved past quickly to get to the good stuff, to the action. Rather, it declares to us that this story actually happened and is still happening. It's the truest of fairy tales, making it different from all of the other fairy tales. Matthew goes on and Verse 2 to say, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. If you ever get asked to read genealogies out loud in a public setting, just quickly and confidently, those are the two words you wanna wanna go with. No one's gonna check you on that except for that one person that maybe brought their copy of a Greek New Testament and you don't wanna be friends with that person anyway, trust me, so just quickly and confidently. Here... In verses two through six, Matthew begins to communicate something of, of Jesus' family tree. Right? These verses presenting us with the generations from Abraham to David. A genealogy in, in Jesus' day was, was something like a resume now. It was a way of letting people know something of, of who you are. So whereas we, we tend to list our degrees, our, our experience, our accomplishments along the way, The Jews in Jesus' day tended to list their family lineage and pedigree. And so a priest, for example, had to produce an unbroken record of his lineage going all the way back to Aaron. Probably comes as no surprise to know that people then would do the same thing that people now are oftentimes tempted to do, namely to leave out the bad parts, so that people in Jesus' day would, would remove from the record those who would otherwise bring disdain upon them purging all of the, the Cousin Eddies, you might say, in order to, to garner more approval and respect from others. That's not at all what Matthew does here. It's not, it's not completely scandalous that Matthew would include women among the names in the list, though it certainly wasn't common practice in a society in which descent was typically traced through the male line. However, the list of women that Matthew chooses to include is absolutely scandalous. Right, we would expect to see maybe some of the matriarchs of Israel's history, women like Sarah, Rebecca, maybe Leah. Instead, there's Tamar, verse three. There's there's lack of consensus among scholars as to to whether Tamar is of Jewish or Canaanite descent, meaning that she may represent uh, a a Gentile inclusion in Jesus's family tree. What, What we do know is that Hamar's children were conceived out of wedlock, Genesis chapter 38, as a result, get this, of having tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her by disguising herself as a cult prostitute. I'm sure all of us have a crazy story like that in our family tree, right? No, that's bizarre, right? An act of incest against God's law according to the Old Testament, leading to the birth of twin boys. It's a scandal which Matthew goes out of his way to make visible by including both Perez and Zerah in verse three. Jesus was descended from Perez, not his brother, and yet Matthew includes both, bringing to mind this scandalous story of Judah and Tamar. And then there's Rahab, verse five, the Canaanite prostitute of Jericho, and Ruth, the Moabite, verse five, whose ancestors tried to seduce the Israelites into sexual immorality and idolatry on the orders of Balak, king of Moab, who felt threatened by the massive Israelite population preparing to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. Which is why Deuteronomy 23.3 tells us, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. Moabites were considered unclean, not allowed to worship in the temple. We're only six verses in, and already we're talking about seduction, prostitution, and uncleanness. Matthew continues with Jesus' record of descent in the second part of verse six, saying, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Whereas verses two through six present us with the generations from Abraham to David, verses six through 11 present us with the generations from David to the Babylonian exile of God's people. So that just as we get to the part of Jesus' lineage that sounds impressive, David the king, going back to the beginning of verse 6, Matthew makes sure to bring to the mind of his readers the great sins of King David by listing Solomon's mother not as Bathsheba, but as Uriah's wife, reminding us not only of David's adulterous affair, but also his premeditated sending of Uriah to die on the battlefield after sleeping with his wife. Following David is Solomon who established and built the temple in the city of Jerusalem and then proceeded to commit a lot of idolatry, which led to the splitting of the kingdom into the north and the south, two kingdoms ruled by both godly and wicked kings. If you go back, we don't have time to do it this morning, but just read through verses 6 through 11 and go and look up some of these kings. Godly and wicked, both represented here in Matthew's genealogical list. We know that the northern kingdom was eventually exiled to Assyria. The southern kingdom, which includes Jerusalem, eventually exiled to Babylon, which is basically to say that verses six through 11 are a reminder of the failure of God's people to live under his reign in accordance with his law. Verses 12 through 16 go on to say, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azar. and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Verses 12 through 16 present us with the generations from the Babylonian exile to the birth of Jesus. Time that was filled with absolute heartache for God's people. Even those who returned to Jerusalem when when Daniel was an old man experienced a a great deal of disappointment. There was no Davidic king to lead God's people. There was a temple, but it was nothing like the one that Solomon had built. Israel was not self-governing, but rather was under the governance of the Persians followed by the Greeks and the Romans. So that people who lived during the time of verses 12 through 16, who lived between the days of Babylon and the days of Jesus still talked about being in exile, even after the exile. That was their perspective because the glories of the past were not being fulfilled in the present. Again, you have everything going dark for roughly 400 years. No prophet speaking on behalf of God. No scripture recorded for the better part of four centuries. Does that mean that God had abandoned his promises? As the apostle Paul would say, by no means. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, the very first declaration of it, going back to Genesis three fifteen, to our first parents in the garden. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse three. Mary says it herself. We'll see this a couple weeks from now in Luke chapter one, verses 54 and 55. So that this seemingly boring genealogy, it's a booming declaration that God always keeps his promises. Again, the, the Christmas story, it's got all the classic ingredients of a compelling fairy tale, king in a kingdom, fire-breathing dragon, damsel in distress, dragon-slaying rescuer, and yet it's true that after all those years of, of fighting not to lose heart, waking up to this fallen, broken world day after day, year after year, generation after generation, and then Jesus, the light entering the darkness of our broken world, In the humble trappings, mind you, of a smelly stable surrounded by blue-collar field workers, Gentile court magicians, and astrologers. You talk about unclean. More like glory to God in the lowest, right? Matthew goes to great lengths to herald the good news that the grace of God in Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. That the gospel is for all people, not just Jews. That the gospel is for sinners, which means it's for you and me. In the words of one scholar that I read this week, the grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. How cool is that? You even see it in what appears to be a, a passing summary statement in verse 17, which says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. If you really dig deep into the record of descent that, that Matthew presents here in chapter 1, what you find is that he actually skips some generations in establishing his sets of 14. In, in one regard, it's, it's to help with memorization because there, there weren't a lot of published writings in Matthew's day. But, but it's also that he was out to communicate not something simply statistical, but rather redemptive historical. That going back to verse one of this morning's passage, the first two words of Matthew's gospel account in the original Greek are biblos genesos, literally, book of Genesis. If you've read uh, the Gospel of John, maybe you've seen that it begins with in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a pointing back to the the story of creation in Genesis chapter one. Well, Matthew does the very same thing. He begins his Gospel account with book of Genesis, taking us back to the, the earliest chapters of the Bible. God's creation of a blissful world made good Man's tragic sin and loss of the garden. God's wondrous promise, Genesis 3.15, to send a rescuer. Or to use the language we've been known to use around here as a church from time to time, creation, fall, redemption. See the same elements in Matthew's genealogical account, believe it or not. You see the forming of a people and establishing them as a great nation from Abraham to David, creation, You see the tragic loss, not of the garden, but of the promised land from David to the exile fall. And you see a rescuing light shining forth into the hopeless void from the exile to Jesus redemption. It's all there. Like, tell me God isn't the greatest storyteller in all of the universe. And I'll tell you, you're wrong. And not only is he the greatest storyteller, but also the greatest promise keeper. So that if you're a Christian, The the takeaway this morning is so very simple. It's this, it's stand amazed yet again at the beauty and wonder of the Christmas story, a story dripping with God's mercy right down to the genealogical accounts. And not only that, trust yet again, this greatest of storytellers with the script of your life would be another takeaway. That he will bring about the greatest good from the greatest wreckage, because that's what God does. We see it in Christ Jesus himself. And if you come in this morning thinking, man, you don't know what a mess I've made in my life. God couldn't possibly love me. If you read that famous chapter of the Bible that many refer to as the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, guess who you find there? Rahab the prostitute. Not on the basis of human merit, not on the basis of intrinsic lovability, not on the basis of moral fiber, but rather on the basis of God's unmerited favor toward sinners. That Hebrews 11 tells us by faith, Rahab assisted God's people in taking over the city of Jericho. She risked her life because she believed God was true to his promise. I mean, isn't it astonishing that a prostitute made the list From a Christian perspective, the answer is not at all. Right? That Rahab would make the list is a declaration of the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Are you a great sinner? Yes. Is Jesus a greater savior? Hallelujah. Rahab's story, found in the genealogy of Jesus, the beginning of the telling of the story of Christmas, Her story means that there's hope for all of us sinners, and his name is Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, I invite you to receive the greatest Christmas gift the world has ever known. It's the hardest gift to receive because you have to swallow your pride in order to take it in hand. Christ your savior and king, the one who brings prostitutes and kings together around the same banqueting table by his grace, Say it every time we get around this time of year, that God came to us is an unwavering declaration that we could never get to him. We could never do enough to bridge the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. But the celebration of Christmas is a celebration that we don't have to. Christmas is not the celebration of self-rescue. Christmas is the celebration of Jesus, our rescuer. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He's the one we're gonna sing about as we move toward December 25th and oh, by the way, December 26th and beyond too because that's the kind of church we are. Particularly this time of year, just invite you as we sing to to ponder the wonder of, of the fact that because of what Jesus has done, in adopting sons and daughters into God's family, that genealogy continues on to today so that your very name would be written if there was a recording of it all. Is that not amazing? If you, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount series and you have any poverty of spirit whatsoever coming out of that, you would go, I think Rahab should be there before me. Wonder of wonders that I'm there by God's grace, because of who Jesus is and what he's done.